ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. William McInnes is not just an actor and an author, he's also a father and the son of a father. And in time, he may well be the father of a father. And if he's exceptionally lucky, he'll wake up one day to have someone shout in his ear trumpet to tell him he's become the father of a father of a father, which is why he's here to talk about fatherhood. William's kids are pretty much grown up now, and it's got him thinking about his memories of his own dad, a lovely, gregarious family man who ran a hire business in the outer burbs of Brisbane, who was a classic dad of his own generation. William's also been thinking about the memories he's creating in the minds of his own kids, who grew up in a two-parent family that became a one-parent family. I spoke with William in 2018, which will explain why his son was travelling in places where perhaps now he wouldn't be able to. Welcome back, sir. Well, how are you? It's nice to be back with you, Richard. It's, it's love. That's, that was very 7.30 of you to, to say that. You're, you're planning I'm a little career, are you? Channeling James Dibble. <laughs> or James. Jeff Raymond. Wherever you grew up. James Dibble with the Coke Bottom glasses. I remember him. He was marvellous. He was, he was our Walter Cronkite. For, in, he was like that all the time, James Dibble. That's right. But that's not important oh, right sorry. now. What is important is, is this. <laughs> now, as I said, your kids are grown up now. Your son, Clem, is, is travelling around Europe at the moment. How's he getting on? Well, he's enjoying himself. He went to sort of cheer along the Socceroos, uh, and, and he did that. He saw the Denmark-Australia match. He said he screamed himself hoarse. Uh, and he said the only people that were really frightening were the English soccer fans. He said everyone else was nice. He said the Russians were friendly, the Spanish were fantastic, but he said the Poms just had to give them a wide berth. They took it very seriously. Is he, he going off the beaten trail a bit? He is a bit. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing he did. <laughs> I dropped him off and I cried because I'm a bit... You know, and he said, just go away. And I went, yeah, so I left. And then I was off rehearsing this play I'm doing at the MTC. And I got a phone call and he said, Dad, I haven't got any shoes. I said, what do, you, what do you mean you haven't got any shoes? I saw you're packing shoes. He says, but I put them in the luggage. And I said, what, do you, what have you got on your feet? He said, nothing. And I said, how did you get through, how did you get through uh, security? He said, I guess they didn't think I was going to like my shoes, so I was safe. <laughs> I said, well, go and buy some thongs or something, footwear. He went, right, and he, he sent me a text photo of the, of the two. They were sort of like Australian tourist thongs. That <laughs> was... Aussie, 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 <laughs> green and gold. Why is he texting you that? Why, why does he need you to tell him that? Who knows? Who knows? But he went over to the Ukraine first right. before he went to Russia. Of course. And then I suddenly thought, is he going to get in? Because they'll see stamped on his passport Ukraine because he wanted to go see a, a Soviet-era uh, missile silo where you can sort of sit there and you can pretend to launch. Right. Um, you can do that now, can you? Yeah, right. you can do that. That's right. how they're turning coin. But he got into into um, to Russia to cheer the Socceroos along, but then he also went to Chernobyl. Your son went to Chernobyl. Well, yeah, apparently. Did, did you know he was going there? No, he right. told me. He right. told me via a phone call. I said, why are you going there? He said, well, they put you in a hazmat suit and you can walk around this deserted city. Uh, it's great. And then I said, oh, well, take care. And I got a text saying, uh, hi, Dad, Chernobyl grouse. Uh, <laughs> Booze cheap as makes you wee glow in the dark. Love you, Clem. <laughs> three stars on TripAdvisor. Yeah, three stars. <laughs> they glow in the dark. 
I mean, I don't know. You know I, when I was his age, I wouldn't have spoken to my father like that. Uh, which brings me to your book, Fatherhood, Stories About Being a Dad. Now, this is not a how-to manual. No, goodness, no. 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 I mean, I couldn't write a how-to manual. I mean... I guess my, I remember my father when he'd yell a lot and he was sort of always running around doing things or pretending to do things. I mean, it was fantastic on a weekend, like a Sunday afternoon, when the theme for World at War was ending or some Elvis Presley movie was ending and he'd just be wandering around trying to find things to do because he was just like doing things all the time. Mm-hmm. So he'd yell at you if he couldn't think of, what are you doing? You're right. Well, yeah, I'm just sitting here. Got to get on, got to get in, got to fix this. So you'd do that. And then about five minutes later, he'd come up and he'd give you a big bear hug and just say, I love you, you're all right, and then walk off and yell at someone else. My dad's thing was when we would go on interstate family trips in the oh, car, God. get up at dawn, dad would yell at everyone in the family all morning, yell at everyone on the way there, until by the time we arrived, the whole family would be sitting in absolute angry, hostile silence, and he'd relax and have a glass of wine and go, oh, come on, everyone, have a cheer up. What's the matter with you all? Here we are. Isn't this great? Canberra. Canberra. Capital of our nation. Why aren't you smiling? That, that was my, my trick. So it's, it's the shouting mixed with love and affection. That's, yeah. that's fatherhood, Everyone, I suppose. When isn't I was it? a kid, but all, all, all the grown-ups, all the people who inhabited the grown-up world used to yell. Like even the people, you were down in the, the shopkeepers. Where are you right there? What do you want, champ? There's some cobbles and a snake. Okay, which one? How many? <laughs> You're just yelling constantly. And I have taken that through my own life. Yeah, and the other thing they'd yell about is telling everyone else to keep it down. Yeah, be quiet. Yeah, yeah. Shut up! Can you keep it down? Yeah, or shut, my, shut your noise. My father had this fantastic thing where he'd sort of mime turning a dial down on a radiogram, right. like, like that, and then he'd get more agitated, like he was having some sort of fit, and then he'd just, for Christ's sake, shut up! My dad was always saying in the kitchen, get out from under my feet. You're under my, you're under my bloody feet. Dad, dad threats were fantastic. Yeah. Dad threats were the best. <laughs> you got you to gotta make me get out of my chair. I took a girl out and her father was the sort of radio guy. He gave me one of the worst dad threats. It was very hard to take seriously. He said, she'll be back home at a reasonable hour. Or it's Krakatoa, North Java for you, son. I was thinking, who says that? Krakatoa, north of Java? Oh, whatever. It should be east of Java. East of Java. Or west of Java, because it was a film. But Krakatoa, west of Java for you. What are you going to do? It was an Irvin, Irving Allen? An Irving Allen disaster yeah. movie. Right, right. So you would have heeded that warning. You, you were, no, I went out at a great time. You went out at a great time anyway, yeah. right. When, when you kids were mucking up in the back of the car, yeah. would your dad try and whack you while he was still driving the car to just tell you to shut up? Like when you, if you were fighting with your sisters or something, did, would he try and whack you while he was still driving He'd the car? He'd just yell. It was my mother you had to worry about because she had a better backhand than Rod Laver. She right. could really sort of deal out some punitive measures to, to, to enforce discipline. I mean, whenever I had one of my sisters said to, to my dad, says, why do we yell so much in this family? And my mum, my, my father said, ask your mother. And mum said... I'm Welsh, he's Irish, so if you don't like yelling, singing and fighting, you can go somewhere else. And then she went, go, try your luck at the Presbyterians by the bus stop. See how long you last. My dad used to offer me free assessments of my character all the time. He used to say to me, son, you're full of piss and wind like a barber's cat. Would your father offer similar assessments of your personality or, or your, indeed your physique and physicality? Yeah, uh, And you'd know, would you? And you'd know. <laughs> That's and what he'd say. Know, yeah. And you'd know, would you? 
And you know, and you say that. My <laughs> parents used to own up responsibility for me because, quite frankly, I did some really particularly stupid things. And my, my father would just say, what is your son doing? And my mum would go, you had nothing to do with it. He's five minutes doesn't make him mine. But it was a, <laughs> it's a weird thing because it was a bit rough and ready, but it was fun. Yeah, and full of affection too. I'm going to go very highbrow on you all of sure. a sudden here. I'm going to put to you a quote about fatherhood from Umberto Eco, which is one I'm particularly fond of, which is really lovely. And he, he wrote once, I believe that what we become depends on what our fathers teach us at odd moments. When they aren't trying to teach us, we are formed by little scraps of wisdom. What kind of things did your father teach you when he wasn't trying to teach you? Th those moments that have, were acted like moments of instruction for you, I suppose. Well, I suppose it's what you see when the way he conducts himself. Now, he was a fellow who, one of his friends after he died said he was like Chinese New Year. It was, like always, a, it was always a party, you know. It was as loud as a battalion of elephants and just as happy. There was always a dragon with 100 people inside yeah, of it trampling it through like. the house, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it was fantastic seeing him do things because he was, um, he was a small businessman, an entrepreneur's son. Like, you'd know. You'd know. Um, and he had his hire business, don't break your back, ring for Mac. That was your dad's business yeah. slogan? Yeah, don't did, break did, your back, ring for Mac. Did, did that go on at the local cinema or at the, uh, at the uh, did, local radio? Once he, he bought a Val Morgan ad and we all had to go and see it. Your dad had a Val Morgan. <laughs> it's got an arm and a leg, but it's worth it. And there's about six people, so us basically. Well, it was a Richard Harris movie, and Omar Sharif was an oil tanker captain, juggernaut. And that was it. And I can't remember that double bill, but it came up and he yelled. Right, was it? Right, okay. So your dad had a Val Morgan ad with, don't, what was the slogan again? Don't so, break your back, ring for Mac. Don't break, right. Followed by another slide that said, after the movie, why not pop by to the chat and chew? <laughs> That's right. That kind of thing. But they had the voice that was like something like, we'll meet you at the Ox for that business dinner or that special night out. That was the best. <laughs> oh, hello, special night out. Redcliffe's most sumptuous array of seafood. See you at the Ox. Dine a la carte. <laughs> they had, there was one. I remember. This was an ad from Brisbane. I, this is way off topic, topic. But I remember an ad for Neptunes of the Valley when I grew up in Brisbane, and it was our special cocktails. With pre-peeled prawns, pre-peeled pre prawns. Pre-peeled prawns. Ah, <laughs> oh, those were the days. Great days, great days. I, I, I still always like those prawn cocktails as well. Uh, so I, I, I took you off track here about those moments when you observe your father. Yeah, and he, way well, he conducted himself, and you know, he was a big, strong guy, and he's a bit loud, and he was a war veteran and a return man, and all that. But he was uh, surprisingly gentle on lots of occasions, and he hated seeing people go without and he couldn't work out why the Second World War had been fought when he saw people in straitened circumstances. He was a very generous guy in that really old, unreconstructed way. It was almost if you showed too much emotion, you were a little bit not on form. He used to sort of say, I've got a, I've got a bit of the sobs going on. Just leave me a bit, will you? I went to a, a, a fancy dress party as Auntie Jack. My mother made this outfit for me. You went as Auntie Jack. Auntie Jack with the gold boxing glove, the old Graham Bond character right, from, from the, the early 70s. Yes, right. And I was just walking around with uh, a boxing glove and a twin set and my football boots and my father was driving back from delivering some acros and he nearly drove <laughs> into somebody's fence when he saw it was me. And he goes, you can't be doing that. You can't be playing dress up somebody public, son. 
so he took me to a night at the Reckliff Police, Police Youth Citizens Club, which was called a father and son glove night, a night of boxes. And uh, it was Reckliff's finest <laughs> pitching themselves against, I, I think somewhere from the book, Kilcoy, I think it was, and all the Reckliff people won except this one kid. And uh, he was really ashamed, this boy. And his father wasn't mean to him because uh, all the kids got, uh, all the boys got uh, a chocolate bar, a free chocolate bar. And this kid had a fat lip and sort of a bit, sort of, he, you know, he's a b- bit of a tough, but he wasn't a bad boy. And he, his dad gave him $2 to sort of, you know, get some Coke or something with his Chiquito or whatever it was. And he said, oh, I don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. He said, I'll see yourself. And he went back to watching the box and his kid was just distraught. Out the front later on, I think my father took me because he thought, oh, well, I just want to see. I don't want him running around, you know, in drag, not in Reckliff, not when I'm doing my business. Uh, I'll take him to the father and son glove night. And uh, when we were leaving, I was out the back and this boy was just sitting there by himself and my old man just walked up to him and he just sort of said a few words. What did he say? He said, you'll be right, you'll get him next time. You did very well. You do very well. I'm very proud of you. And um, he said, "You." And he got. He gave him a chocolate bar. He said, "You deserve that." He got him, bought one, and the kid, really, I don't know, just sort of stood a bit taller, and it was just a old school sort of generosity, a and small then act of kindness. That, yeah, that, that's and very then kind. I thought, "Oh, that's pretty cool." And then we were walking back, and the old man said, "You know, you like playing dress ups, do you?" And I said, sometimes it's fun. He said, it's not my cup of tea, but, you know, if it floats your boat, that's all right. And he just sort of gave me a pat in the head. He didn't really quite get me because I was the youngest by a fair whack. I mean... Did you disappoint him by failing to become the drag queen you were... <laughs> he thought you might have become uh, at that there's point? There's a whole... You know, when I take home some of my... Because he was a carpenter too. And, you know, he built houses as well as his hire business. And he was sort of a, sort of an obvious man's man. And I'd bring home some of my manual training woodwork or metalwork and he's <laughs> look at me and said for Christ's sake son go to uni you're not doing a trade <laughs> right I mean, my experience was similar too if I made something useless in tech studies I'd like I, I would be given like a, a square of acrylic and and my job is to bevel its edges put it through the plastic heat machine to turn it into a letter holder and I give that to my mother and mum would go that is the most lovely thing darling I will use that God bless you and then I have to make make something like a toolbox for my father and he'd go well that's ridiculous I can't use that God is, is that the best you can do it's what, a, what, you know what do they teach you in that school really well, they, you know? that was it was frightening I mean yeah. I because you know being being adept at manual training was sort of, you know a shortcut to manhood yes if you had one of the one of the manual arts teachers who were all incredibly hairy and yes. sort of, you know. All, all mine had beards, all of them. Yeah, they'll talk like that. They have voices yeah. down the back of their throat yeah. like a headmaster. This utensil, and they'd hold up some sort of indecipherable piece of twisted metal. This utensil's a handy utensil. Well done, Woods. <laughs> well done. Your utensil's a handy utensil. That was the highest prize. I never got that. I used to steal other kids' work and try and pass it off as my own. In my report cards for woodwork... <laughs> Every every term it was the same. Would work C plus, and then the comment was a quiet, steady worker, which meant the teacher had forgotten who I was. I was uh, I was called a couple of times. You know, I was called a c- couple of times. We had a guy called Donger. We used to call Donger after the Paul Hogan character. 
And he called me out, and I thought, have I got a hand utensil? And he says, this is a scone-cutter disgrace! A scone-cutter disgrace? Were you you making scone-cutters, were you? Ah, uh, like metalwork and woodwork. And, and was that like a pizza cutter or something like that? What it was, was a bit of stainless steel, thin stainless steel, mm. twisted round, and you had to rivet it together, and with a little handle that was pointless, you know. Not even a sort of baby could get their hands through it, and that was it. My teachers, when they would express their displeasure with you, they'd say things like, I've had a gutful of you, Fiedler. They'd say things like that. <laughs> a friend of mine was told, I knew your older brother. He oh, was rubbish and you're rubbish. You know, that, that sort of thing was being thrown out. What, what kind of insults were thrown your way by, by your teachers? I had, there was one great uh, year 11 comment. This boy isn't as clever as he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of my time on the veranda of my education. <laughs> the one pa- parent-teacher interview my father came to, was this, this sort of, uh, this deputy head was there and he said, this boy needs a bit of discipline and I think we can give it to him. <laughs> My father went, go for your life, brother. Go <laughs> for your life. So the whole point was that you had to make gifts for the parents. What did you make for your father, your father the builder, the father who made the manual arts his, his livelihood? I gave him a cheese board uh, and it was not... It was pretty bad. William, how do you mess up a cheese board? It's just a plank of wood, isn't it? I know, it? it's a bit of a chipboard with a bit of laminate sort of stuck to it and a sort of handle. But the handle was... It was almost like a novelty you get at the Easter show, you know? For some odd reason, it would just swivel all the time. I'd over-drilled it and it was hopeless. And what did your father say when you presented him with this? He said, well, this is something. This is something. The only two presents I can remember giving him, a Father's Day present, was when I was in... Humpybong infants, we had to do, do a portrait of your father. And the local woolies picked some out to hang in the window and they picked one of mine. I thought, I thought oh, wow, it's fantastic. And mine was this guy, just the head, smoking a pipe. My father never smoked a pipe. I mean, never. I think I was thinking of Fred McMurray from yeah, My Three Sons. Yeah, that's the thing, because dad's, the, 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 the archetypal dad was Fred McMurray from My Three Sons, yeah, a yeah. man who smoked a pipe. Yeah, and or th- was like Mike Brady, had a kind of a, a head of curly hair You've got to be very like careful when you think about, you know, TV fathers and how far they've fallen. I mean, look at Bill Cosby, and that, not a great track record. Well, I was going to bring that up. He wrote a book called Fatherhood I know, well. don't. I'm yeah. just sort of genuflecting now and touching any bit of wood. Oh, this wood here, it reminds me of my cheese board. <laughs> but... Um, uh, I think the Fred McMurray was always interesting because I thought, you never hear Fred giving father threats. Like, okay, Chip, you'd know. Don't you'd make know. me get out of my chair. Don't make me get out of my chair. Right. You never said that, no. So I put a pipe in it and it got stuck up on the window. And he, I remember I gave it to him and he just went, well, that's something. And then I made this, it was one of the few things that didn't disintegrate. I made a manual training because I... And there was a teacher who was always saying, how did you go with that? How'd you, your father's the builder, isn't he? And the guy was hearing that. And, yeah. He said, no, good luck with that. And I thought he was sneering at me, this teacher. But he was actually generally, when I said that my father said it was, uh, it was something, he said to me, this teacher, he was the only, he was a very hairless, he was the only hairless manual training teacher at school. Uh, and he said, oh, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's good he said that. But he had a problematical relationship with his old man. I think he was a bit worried about me. But my father did just take this rotten piece of, you know, idiot sort of standard of craft work and he just kept it in his office. And when he died, my mum said, oh, there's a few things here that you might like. 
and she divvied up for all of us and I got a box and at the bottom was my cheese board and he'd written on it. Uh, he must have been doing a quote and he couldn't find anything so he had his carpenter's pencil and he had really incredibly neat writing and he was writing and then he'd done the sums and, you know, and I was looking at it and then at the bottom he'd just written this cheese board is something. And I thought, oh, my, I nearly, you know, I just sort of sat holding it. It was sort of quite sweet. kept it, I mean, for some reason. And then the handle was still... No good. <laughs> loose as ever. Well, this is the thing, you know. You know, there's the kind of the old cliche that you know when you get a present from your kid, no matter how wonky it is, it's the thought that counts. But it's actually true, it isn't is true. it? It is the truth. So he he said the kindest thing he could say about it to let you know that, well, it's dreadful, but I appreciate the thought. Yeah. And this is something that's the kindest thing that could be said. It wasn't nothing. Yeah, well, that sort of oh, this is something that's very nice. Some, that's something you know. <laughs> throws it away. But your dad taught you many things in life, including how to gargle. As I recall. Oh my God, yes. He taught you how to gargle because you didn't know how to gargle. No. It's an important skill to have. How, how old were you when he taught you how to gargle? Well, I'd hate to say this because that was the year I. That was, that was a difficult year. That was my uh, 15th year, I think, or just turning 15. Had you gone 15 years in this world without ever gargling until this point? Well, he just decided I needed to be taught how to gargle. Uh, it was not a good year. I mean, I did get a perm that year by mistake because I thought I was in love with the hairdresser and she only said, you know, she was an apprentice hairdresser at a, <laughs> it was an undercover barber and she said, would you like a perm or Because uh, I was sent home from school with the notes saying you've got to get this, this boy has to have his hair cut, he's not coming back to school. And I did you know that. what a perm was? No. I just knew that this girl was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And, uh, you know, about 30 minutes later I went, I am just going to die. This is, this is, cause I was like, Bong. and I was given $10 for the haircut which was to get a hamburger, because it would have been about six bucks, I think. And the, the perm cost 28 so I had to go, can I give you the $10 and sort of walk? I was walking through the arcade, and one of the teachers was there getting a... This is, this is this sort of summed up. He was a father, this guy. He um, had... He wasn't in his sort of tie and, you know, white shirt. He was in his... He had a Marine World tank top, grey shorts, and sort of flip-flop, not even proper thongs. And he had a Pix people, and he had a, he just bought a, a crumb sausage, and he screamed at me. And I think this is fair dinkum, hell, this is like holidays. Why are you doing that? And he said, McGinnis, McGinnis, you better not have that hair when you come back to school. You have to job in Bullens. What? Bullens. You know, Bullens Circus as a clown. Oh, right. <laughs> so the, he, was in, he was in league with the sportsmaster who gave me the note to get my hair cut. And then when I went home, I sort of walked in, and my mother was, because she was too busy to give me the home haircut. And she turned around and she said, oh, Jesus Christ! Then I remember my father running in, and it was a weekend, so he was trying to find things to do. So he was sort of doing a bit of machete work with the banana trees, and he ran in and all of a figure this big guy with his Makita cap and the machete saying, Hot And he just went, ah! He looked out at me, and he pointed this machete and said, Christ, boy, Christ alive! When I was your age, I was jumping out of my planes and killing Germans! For what?! It was like, <gasps> so your father at your age, at that age, was jumping into planes and killing Germans. He was extemporising a bit. But and, he did, he, he, and, and you, you, you wastrel, going, going down to get a perm. Well, it got worse because I, I, my sister Corby stitched me up by saying, you know, your skin's going to get better if you sleep in a hairnet. So I had this sort of... Hairnet on, on the on perm, perm. On the and perm. That's and, when he and, came out. And he... spots. I'm just trying to imagine what you would have looked like. And I, the picture I'm getting, I have to say in my head, is like a very tall horseshack from Welcome that's Back Hot. That's what Hotter. I got called in a game of rugby. Horseshack. 
The first game, the first ruck, I hear this kid say, let's get Horshack, and my head got pulled all points of the compass. And then I just went home. I went. I, st- I showered, went home. Before I went home, I went to a barber on Woody Point, and he just shaved the whole lot. And then I walked in, and my mother said, Jesus Christ! And my father came running in. He said, that's a real man's haircut, son. And I cried. But the gargling was, I, you know, I couldn't gargle, and I coughed a bit. And then he just burst in saying, it's about time you learn how to gargle. What? He took me out the backyard and he said he, there was instructions to gargle. Right, re- recline the head. Yeah, no, get your, you know, right. you, you know, get your shoulder, feet shoulder length, your shoulder length apart. There's, there's you know, you know stand, Oh, there's a correct stance for the gargle. So, so right, knees, you right. your knees, get your head back, gargle. I'll go, and then you think, this is crazy. And then you just think when he's. He's got to be up his ass about something, and then he suddenly says, "Right, now let's do a tune." And he started doing gargling, dueling banjos together. <laughs> Call and response gargling, and then he went off to do something. He got whatever he was sort of irritated about out. That was a sort of very funny memory. Your dad was a very practical man, like I said. Tell me about the water pistol full of caro he used to leave near the Barbie. <laughs> Please, this is something. This stuff happened in the seventies, and no. it could never happen now. No, um, there'd be you know, you'd have you know, fire rescue, you know, you know emergency we workers on your doorstep. Station. Right, you live next to a fire station. How did this whole thing work? When, well, how did the system work? When he when he wanted to juice up the barbecue and get it happening quickly, he had a like a water plastic water pistol filled with kerosene, and he'd squirt it, and it <laughs> sort of erupt. But he kept it in a frangy panty tree on a string. Why did he keep it there? Because it was next to the barbecue. Right, of course. That's a stupid question, right? This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Now, when you were a kid growing up, was the TV always on with your dad watching it in the house or was it just sort of always warbling on in the background? The radio or the TV was always on. I don't know why, but it's the same. I love hearing noise. I don't know why. When I write, I have to write to noise. Oh, really? You need to have that burble in the background because yeah, that's what you grew up in. listening to the races or some... It's, it's not something that you really listen to. In Melbourne, my favourite local ad that was made was for Del Monte Suits. Oh, yeah, we t- Hosted by Hal Todd, you know? Hal Todd would say, Delmont, and his slogan was, was the best slogan. It was Del Monte suits, look good, feel good, are good. How about in Queensland, in Brisbane? Do you well, have similar local there was, ads? There was uh, Errol Stewart's warehouses. We, we, you pay less when we look after you, the bunch of softies. And then my mother <laughs> would sometimes say, when I was very little, she'd say, you know, this is where we'd be going to bed, and she'd come and give you a cuddle and a kiss and say, this is where the little elves cuddle down to hide themselves. Into fluffy beds they creep, close their eyes and go to sleep. Nighty night, sweetly rest like the birdie in its nest. And then if your father came in, he'd go, you pay less when we look after you. Hey! That was it. It was like fathers back then had were free roam. They, were, they had more important things to do than just be a father because they were, you know... I always remember my mother going shopping. I used to, well, I used to love going shopping with my mum after school on a Friday. And we'd go to Woolies or Coles. And then I saw a teacher uh, at my school who was doing the shopping. And I thought, I'd never see a man doing shopping. See, what's he? I didn't particularly like that teacher. And my mother just poked me and she said, no, he's 
looking after two little, three little girls because his wife died. So you just be, you just watch yourself. And she said, and it's always nice to see a man with a list doing the shopping because he actually does it properly, you know. Um, and I just thought, oh, that's weird. But you know, as you as you as you go on through life, I mean, you know, I I ended up doing that after my, my wife died. You were the widower in the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, and you know, people sort of. It's, it's you know it still even happens today when people recognise although I have been in a good paddock, uh, but people recognise you and they sort of the first thing that comes across their face is oh that's that's the guy whose wife died, and you know but it's weird when you're a single parent because you try and be a hybrid parent which is not great and you know you 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 wonder how you get through something like that and you know you can't forget something that's been a part of your life, nor should you, you like that love and that affection that you had. It's not right to forget it, but you move on um, and you do your best. And when you're in the supermarket in that moment, when you sort of get the idea that people are going, oh, there's that 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 man, that poor man, the widower, and your kids are with you, do you think they notice that too? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 so easy because everyone's the lead in their own movie. That's a really crude way of putting it. And... It's a different story for my kids, and the way they've handled it, and the way what they go through. Still, I think it's their story, and I know that. Uh, you know, I tend to worry less about my son, but you know, he's a sort of big Clydesdale of a human being. But he's also a very gentle. There's a part of him that's very gentle and sensitive, and I, you know, I wonder what that was like. And my daughter too, you know, uh, going through her adolescence without a mum and it's a terrible thing I mean it's sometimes it's very funny like you know when I had to go buy her I was walking through a DFO and I thought oh there was a work party and some bra special was on and I got a up so I bought some bras for her you bought some bras for your daughter yeah oh man on well, spec oh know. no did no one ever tell you you're not allowed to buy bras for your daughter <laughs> well I mean I thought like, this is you're what, just trying to be a practical dad yeah, were you practical right. dad on special is what on you special, saw I bought the maternity bras she's threw them <laughs> back in my face <laughs> It's like my hearing goes too, you know. Like I, we were walking through the supermarket uh, shopping centre, and she was talking, but she said something, and she was in a you know her school uniform. She went to Loretta. She's in a school uniform, and I was half thinking something, and I heard this, and I said, "What? You're pregnant?" And she just looked at me. Said, what? What did you just say? What did you just say? And I'm yelling like that, like my father used to yell. Like <laughs> you get so adult. What, 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 what? Like that. She said, I said there's there's Batman. I'm Batman. I said, What? I said, How is that how do you get that wrong? Because we walked past one of those sort of movie franchise shops with all the, the figurines oh, and right. And she'd said something, and I'd half heard it. And then she I'd, said Batman and you heard pregnant. pregnant. And then she said, Yeah, I'm gonna have a baby. <laughs> Bainby, very good. Yeah, she's, yes. she's witty. And meanwhile, the passers-by this time are walking past going, there's that widower, and now his daughter's pregnant. What can you expect? I, I, I think I got from reading one of the chapters of your book is, though, that you maybe it brought you as a as a family closer together and that maybe your kids had to be a bit tender to you. Tell me the story of, of you're a bit nervy when you fly, like, like I am, too, oh, yeah, about yeah. how your daughter helped you through a, a bumpy flight to Japan. Yeah, that was sort of... I teed up when I... Um, you know, there's some... There was a woman in. We were up the pointy end, and um, 
she scared everyone. She was really together. She was very efficient. Uh, she was just doing a lot of work. She was obviously going up there for business. She wasn't mucking around. She told the steward how she wanted her gin and tonic, and it wasn't right, and she called them back. And then I thought, oh, you know. So we're having a nice time. And then um, I hate turbulence. Uh, I get very frightened, and I get very loud, you know, as I've got older, and you get more like your parents. What, so. do, what, what sort of things do you say when you hit a few bumps? Hey, hey, come on now. Like the pilot's doing it on purpose. <laughs> Stop there! Stop up there! Do I have to get out of my seat? Like you know, I bet you they got perms too. Do you, do you really say that? Do you say, yeah, "Hey, hey, now"? I, don't, I say things like, "Hey, hey, hey, that's not on." You shout like like the pilot's being a hoon. Yes, like he's the, being a fool. Right, he's being like, a fool. I'm going to that big guy in in, in 4C. I'm watch, <laughs> watch, listen to this. Make it shudder. Hey, hey, hey! Come on now, that's no good. It's pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I did that, and then I went, oh, Christ, and I started, you know, gibbering, and then my daughter just held my hand, and it was so sweet. And did she smile? She you? smiled at me, and she sort of, come on, you're all right. And it was so sweet. Uh, the best thing was the woman who was being the sort of, you know, the bodicea of, of business class, <laughs> when the plane dipped, she just went, Mummy! <laughs> She screamed out, Mummy. Yeah. And wow. no one paid. She, had the she wanted the gin and tonic. She was just going to get it in here. No, no one's paying attention to it. It was like a bit of karma. But that's the thing, Richard. You know, you get your kids and you, if, if someone says, what do you want for them? Your immediate response is, I just want them to be happy. And that doesn't work. No. I mean, because life will impact on them in all manner of ways. Now, happiness is a byproduct of whatever yeah. you're supposed to be doing, isn't it? And if you, mm. if, you know, happiness wouldn't be happiness if, if it wasn't that elated state, which is so lovely when, it, when you are happy because you're not always happy. And when you think about your kids, like I found this thing yesterday, this buggy that my mum bought my daughter. It's a Y2K bug. It was just a cuddly toy and it was this goofy-looking thing, which is really funny. What sweet. a stuffed toy. Yeah. It was like called the Y2K bug. bug with all these arms and crazy antennas. And my daughter used to call it buggy and used to sort of – you know, play with it and put it in the sand pit and dress it up. And it's in my study at the back and it's all sort of moth-eaten and a bit mottled. And I went, oh, it's buggy. And I was thinking about it and I'm thinking, oh, that she was so cute when she she buried one of my logies and watered it to make it grow in the sand pit when she was a toddler. What? Yeah. Your daughter buried, they planted just, your logie? They were just hanging around. You know, they weren't they were just it was on a bookshelf or something. Or And then she'd put it in the sand pit and sort of water it and... I thought, that's sort of cute. And you think that little kid or you know, when my son was a toddler, he'd run around sort of catching butterflies and giggling when they, you know, he, he could feel them in his hands and then he'd just let them go up like that. And I thought, what a cute kid. And then my daughter turns out to be the young woman who holds my hand on a plane and soothes me and calms me. And then my son is this great big generous Clydesdale of a teenager who grows up into a sort of fully... Formed Carlton United draft horse, you know. Yeah, his urinating, the, glowing urine yeah, in uh, Chernobyl. Yes. And so, what 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 stage do you want your kids to be? You know, emotionally, I don't know. I used to think ten and under was the bomb for me. When I think of times in my life that I loved, it was having the, the kids, and, and not it just changes. They're our own people after a while, and when they hug you, they they give you everything they've got. And it is such a precious feeling. 
Now, we, we can't t- talk about fatherhood without talking about pyjamas. I think that's one of the key moments in a man's life when he becomes a father. Yeah. You realise you can't sleep in your jocks anymore and you actually have to wear pyjamas if you're going to be an all presentable father in your life. When you think of your own dad, what, what kind of pyjamas do you associate with him? He, you could always tell uh, the, the changing climbs by my, my, my father's jammies. The warmer weather would bring shorty pyjamas, usually with uh, nights or, you know, <laughs> ships on them. Like um, poly, poly cotton. Yeah, poly cotton. Short sleeve, short yeah. pants. Yeah. And, a bit uh, too loose around the gusset often yeah. too. That's always a bit of a, you've got to be careful when you sit down in those things, quite frankly, as a grown man. Well, my father yeah. used to call it open sesame. <laughs> um, like and it. then in winter he'd have the flannies, like mm. the striped flannies, or with uh, adorned with uh, a two-tone brown and a darkie, like a caramel, and then a, and a, a mission brown cuff. With a bit of piping around the wrist. Yeah. The wrist. So h- how about yourself, when you, now that you, you, you've you been wearing dad pyjamas for quite a while, how far outdoors will you go in those pyjamas? Well, you? Uh, you know, technically I've been uh, outed uh, on railway stations. Uh, <laughs> railway stations? Oh, that's way further than I thought <laughs> you'd go. Delivering a, a lunch when my, when my daughter was at school and I had to go give her the lunch. And, and uh, what jammies are we talking about here? Are they sort of like... Well, they were undercover more... jammies. Right. They're not... Well, they're, 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 I had one with um, rocket ships on it, which was a, which was not a goer, but I had a pair of uh, light blue pyjamas, uh, which were great because people... I went to get a coffee after dropping uh, the kids off at the railway station and I had Crocs on and I just had a blue top and the, the, the long trousers and <laughs> the barista said, were you operating overnight? And I went, huh? Yes. <laughs> I thought, what's he talking about? See, so here you go, doctor. He thought I was from surgery because there was right. an hospital up the road. You would have looked like Hawkeye Pierce from MASH too, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, now you're talking. Hawkeye. Yeah, always yeah. in his jammies and a dressing gown. I do get caught sometimes doing the sort of rubbish night creep in my jammies. You know, like, oh, the, the bottles are filled up and so you have to go somewhere else and I have to drop off my recreational Irish gargle water and various bins. <laughs> How was your dad, your dad when it came to uh, displays of affection? Could he, could he hold you and hug you? Could he tell you he loved you? He, he often said he loved us. Oh, that's lovely. And uh, That's unusual for men of his generation, I think. Yeah, I don't know. But it, as I said earlier, it was when he was, uh, you know, had to be up his bum about something, but then he'd turn around and give this big bear hug and say, I love you, you're all right. And I remember that most of all really, when I think about him. I mean, he was a funny guy, but he sort of lived a life that a lot of, I don't know about because I was so much younger. Well, that I wasn't really aware of. I mean, he... He was a veteran and he'd seen... Yeah, he'd terrible seen things. Terrible things. Did he ever talk about that? No, not really. I mean, we saw him once on the TV in some docu- documentary about some battle called Arnhem and he was having a tourly of forex and he was scratching the dog's belly by the table and the TV was on. We were watching it. And then my mother said, Christ, Colin, it's you. And he... This 19-year-old version of himself got up going, fire, 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 and he jumped back down and all these... You watched your dad in yeah, a World yeah, War yeah, II documentary? Yeah. and he, um, we turned around and he just said, oh, not a bad-looking bloke, and he's got the gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. But he didn't really talk about it. He didn't. He, he, he did say once that it was the best time of his life outside the family, and I think that meant he was doing... He was a part of something that was a force of good and a part of something that... Uh, was making the world a better place. And that generation, I think, carried that through with them uh, for the rest of their lives, by and large, even though some were traumatised and some 
perhaps didn't survive the conflict that they were a part of, but they lived through it, sort of haunted them for the rest of their lives. But um, he was a very generous guy. And I, he used to love how he would appropriate, you know, things like the movie Matinee on a Sunday. And there was a film he loved called Rio Bravo. And it was like, because he liked Dean Martin a lot. And he quite liked John Wayne, although he said, you know, he didn't serve. But when we went to see, my mum was telling us a story. He took her out to the movies to see, uh, what was that uh, Rooster Cogburn movie? Uh, True Grit. True Grit. And when John Wayne, at the end of the movie, says, fill your hands. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. My dad Mm. stood up and went, go, you big bastard, go. (laughs) It was like, he was like, he was at a football. He says, come on, oh, look at him, go. But he loved those sorts of things that were those archaic like the suburban men, maybe not just suburban fathers, but they used to love the idea of that the cowboys were a force of good and no matter how rotten they were, they came good in the end and there was... And he loved Rio Bravo. He loved Dean Martin in it. And there was a, a song in it called My Wife, My Pony and Me. And there's a lyric in it that said, it's time for a cowboy to dream. And that was another thing he said to us sometimes, I remember. My sister said after he died, remember how he used to say, it's time for a cowboy to dream? I said, yeah. So sweet. And he took that from the film. And when he was being, he wasn't being the hale and hearty Errol Stewart's warehouse dad. He'd just come on and he'd just sort of stroke your head and he said, it's time for a cowboy to dream. This is very, very quite lyrical, really, in a, in a weird sort of a way. Old, old school, romantic usefulness. So if your dad grew up in the Depression, saw probably some amazing but terrible things in, in World War Two. By the time you're on the scene, and you, he's, he's a man who's got his own business in Redcliffe in, outside of Brisbane. He's near the water. You know, there's a good pub down the road. There's peace and quiet. Lovely family. D- do you think he felt like he'd, he'd build his own little bit of paradise? Yes, he did. He loved it. I mean, that's what his view of getting lucky in, in many ways when you today would be so silly modest. You know, and you, why don't you wish for more? All he ever wanted was to have his family, a nice meal on the table, and everyone in the neighbourhood being looked after. It was a strange sort of, uh, I don't know, pleasant, modest happiness he was after because his contentment, you didn't have to be, you know, a Rockefeller or a Packer or a Murdoch, just as long as you had enough not to worry about paying bills. And, as he said, enough to give people if they came asking and they needed something. Tell me the story of what happened when you were grown up and you went round to his place and he talked about his plans to sell his business oh, yeah. and retire. I'd just come back from uni and he was, uh, his life was closing down because after he sold the business, he got, he, he got very ill. He got dementia after he, after he sold it. Uh, and he was saying, oh, well, it's no use. No one wants to take it on the family. And I was just being a smart ass. And I said, I don't know about that, Dad. And then he didn't bite straight away. And he said, Are you serious about that? And I laughed. And I said, Why would I be? And it was me trying to say, Oh, I'm the guy who brings the rotten cheese boards home. I mean, how could I run a business like this? And why would I be interested in, you know? But he might have heard that as disdain. Oh, yeah. As disdain for his, and his life, life's yeah. achievement. And then I actually tried to say sorry to him um, a bit later, and he just went, it's all right, son, don't worry about it. And I thought, oh, what a punce. And, um, yeah, it's, I wish I hadn't have done it, but I think it's just natural. Everyone sort of does that, you know, 
but I, I didn't need to do it either because I thought I was just being funny and we were sort of bantering with each other and it was always that sort of uh, put-down humour. You know, you, you rib someone, you stir someone. But you can accidentally oh, yeah. really hurt someone sometimes. Yeah, um, and I, tried, without- I, I said to my mum, she said, of course, did he, was he upset? He said, of course he was upset. There's no use apologising now because he doesn't want to hear it. Did he, did he think you were kind of sneering at his life's work? Maybe. I don't know. But again... But he you just, weren't. You no, weren't. he probably just worked out. He just hurt, I think. He was, he was generous enough to know that I was just a sort of a young buffhead trying but he, to be funny. But here's the thing. I think there's a bit of business going on with fathers and, and parents and children. One generation does displace another. Mm. That's, the, that's the truth. And our kids displace us. And so it goes down the yeah. down the track as what they did, which was relevant in their time, becomes less so. So there was probably some cruel, a slight bit of cruel truth in what you'd said. Well, I think he got that. That's what I always took out of it. I wish I hadn't have said it, but he just thought, oh, well, that's okay. That's just the way life is. And here's another thing that might be another cruel truth, is that parents love their children more than their children can ever love them and know, must not ever love them because they want to never have their own lives. Well, that's the way it should be, you know. When you when you have kids, you work out it's not about you anymore. I may have said earlier that you're always the lead character in your own movie, but not really. I mean, I mean, maybe f- familial love and service is 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 a strange sort of uh, product of civilization. I don't know how we've developed, but you, it's either your bag or it's not. And just because, you know, uh, families may have broken up, it's, you know, it doesn't mean you're a rotten person. But I I loved it, and I do love it, and I love the people they've become. And I do get a bit misty-eyed and sentimental, and, you know, that's what sort of overweight, middle-aged, middle-class men do. So I don't know what you're talking about there. So, uh, <laughs> so that's in- what an interesting perspective you're giving me here. Uh, when you're about to become a father, you talk to other men, who were roughly your age, who were already dads. And this is, this is I've, I've talked about this before. And they tend to say things to you like, ha, welcome to phase two, mate. You know, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, shitty nappies, no sleep. Ha, ha, look at him, he's about to become a dad. And I think to me, that's, that's a screen that men put up sometimes to, or a canvas to sit on top of very powerful and unsettling emotions of love and attachment that they feel to, I know they feel for their own kids. Yeah. And they smother that with this bit of nonsense. Oh, oh yeah. tough. It's like the thing that happens when you get married to someone you love. Oh, well, man, my mate, the old ball and chain. I don't know if people even say that anymore. And that's, that's what a good thing that is. But that, I think men do that, don't they? They, oh, they, do. they smother the surge of uns- the, the forcefulness of the attachment they feel to their kids by this, this bit of polite. On top. And it's coming to terms with having children too. I mean, some to some people it's a total upheaval and even if they think they're ready for it, they're not. And they're dealing with their partner. What she may be going through or he may be going through if they've got kids, uh, you know, uh, and they, men are very bad at that, trying to be offhand and flippant. Like you can say something like, you know, I don't want to buy your business. Why would I buy, buy your business? Something like that. And it really resonates with somebody. And of course, you know, you want the, you know, some things don't work out, but sometimes I just, the older you get, you think, why do, do men, not just men, but I'm speaking from a penis owner, I'm an owner operator. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do we just cover ourselves in such bullshit sometimes? I don't understand that. I really don't. And I, I can be as grumpy and as, you know, I can throw generalizations around like hand grenades like the rest of them, but, you know, 
it's, I always say this, but, you know, there's an end point to all our lives and I just don't see the point in draping it with nonsense and in sort of self-protective nonsense because it's, it is such fun being alive. And kids, it's, you've done something wonderful with somebody and you've created this little human. It's beautiful. When you become a dad, you meditate a lot on your own, one's own father, if one was lucky enough to have a father in one's life, as you and I were, very fortunate to have lovely dads. What were the core things you recalled from your dad, the things that he said and did that you wanted to go, really wanted to give to your own kids? That I love them. I think that's why he's always, he always sort of would yell a lot, but he'd always come up and tell you. He would say, I love you. Even when he was, you know, he remember him trying to teach my one of my sisters to drive, <laughs> and he was screaming at her. He should go as far as the the driveway, and he goes, "Christ, you should have been drowned at birth." I love you, but I'm not getting in the car. You know, he always made sure that he wasn't frightened of saying, "I love you. You are something very important to me." and and I think, yeah, I, I tell my kids too often, I suppose, and you can maybe you can diminish it. But if I go on a plane, I always text, oh, I love you. And then, you know, and then Glenn goes, flying again, Dad? <laughs> well, then let me conclude this conversation by saying, I love you, mate. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, Where's know. the reciprocity here? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd know, would you? You'd know what love is. No, I love you too. I'd give you, you a cuddle, but the... Uh, the cheese board is just too big. <laughs> it's just too big between us at the no, moment. It was a nice chatting. It was a bit sort of therapeutic. In it's a very sort of therapeutic, life. I think. Yes, very therapeutic for both of us, I think. I hope. Anyway, <laughs> hopefully you and I will emerge from this conversation better human beings. William, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Richard Feidler, you're, uh, as this man said to me in a pub in Young and Jackson's in Melbourne once for no apparent reason, you should wear a sword. <laughs> you're noble. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You've been hearing my conversation with William McInnes from 2018. William's latest book is called Yeah Nah, a celebration of life and the words that make us who we are. You can also see him in action playing the phlegmatic Lindsay Cunningham in the ABC TV series The Newsreader, which you can find on ABC iView. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.